Polyhedron is a production of Headcanon Games, LLC. Please bookmark Headcanon Games for the latest in Polyhedron news. Polyhedron is sponsored by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to become a patron of Polyhedron, please go to patreon.com polyhedron. Now, on with your show. Welcome to Polyhedron, your multifaceted podcast for everything RPG-related. As always, I am Matthew, your host, and with me today is my two co-hosts, Ryan. Hey. And Scott. I don't care what you say, I'm keeping this baby. Bodily, sure. Bodily Go ahead, I will not contest it in court, I promise. And as an extra special bonus for this episode, a good friend of the show has come back on to talk about uh, some stuff that's going to be... We're going to be discussing later on, which is Dylan Coffee. It's me again, guys. Well, how Dylan? How are you? I'm good. Good, because good. I don't care about these two others. We're just going to you're going to gonna have a chat. Them. I'm not pregnant. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. All right, you're welcome aboard. Yeah. Boom, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, baby. <laughs> well, Scott has to take his paternity leave because we're not monsters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a wonderful start to a wonderful episode. I can already foresee it. I am pathetic. It's, it's really, it's really weird that we don't have that many listeners. Honestly. <laughs> I don't understand why. No, no We're reason. So, but anyways, let's get to it. Before we get to the main topic, which we'll be talking about LARP game design, which is super rad, super cool stuff, <laughs> we're going to go over some news. There's not a lot of news this week, so this shouldn't take too long. Uh, big <laughs> Thank thing God, is, I hate learning things. Yeah. Sorry. Keep doing it, man. Please don't make me learn. You're too learning late. right now. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no. So the first bit of news is from me. Uh, Cyan got fully funded to the tune of $334,714. In accordance with prophecy. Yes. Thank you, everyone who are listening and backed that uh, Kickstarter. It was fantastic. It's great. That that project's going to do so much good for Onyx Path. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the stretch goals, which is related to what we're going to talk about later on, is actual LARP rules for Scion. Yes! Which is going to be very interesting because it deals with gods and being super heroic and you'll you'll understand a little bit more later on why that can get problematic troublesome even but i have faith unfortunately don't know who exactly is going to be writing the rules um but the the, the studio has been announced i just can't dig it up in fact uh you out there in tv land should probably comment wherever you're watching this with the name of the company because i'm sure you will figure it out before us lazy fucks and you will like to shove it in our face all capitals okay i'll say your name I'll sure, yeah. And in other LARP news, um, By Night Studios has released their Werewolf the Apocalypse LARP rules uh, for all of us to devour, and it's very interesting. Does it still use chops? Yes, it does. Does it still use chops? Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be kind of the weird defender of chops here. It was sold to me one time because uh, the guy who was talking to me basically said, what's the one resolution mechanic you could use in 1991 in a bar? Huh. Listen, and I, that's why it is. What I it completely is. agree with that, and I think that's great. I just oh, it's booty mathematically. It's, it's mathematically booty. In, oh, in also, fact. you can really cheat, like um, really cheat. And that's, that's why, why I, I use cards. It, yeah, that's what a lot of Mind's Eye Society people uh, I mean, use. The is cards. they just get cards and they yep. just deal out cards to each other. I mean, and that's easy. When me, when many, when me and Dylan were in the um, uh, unknown army. Uh, oh, well, sorry, in the Unknown Armies game, yeah, we used uh, pr- uh, draw two, like pull two cards, 
as a percentile, which was actually a very good, very mm-hmm. good system. Oh, uh, so everyone's on the same page. When we say chops, we're saying paper, rock, scissors. That's the basic game you play in any of the uh, By Night Studios I or believe, Minds Night stuff. I believe in an earlier episode, I said some very, very nasty things about it as a resolution. I believe <laughs> you. It's not good. Uh, what they did do, and this is the same with Vampire and the new Werewolf rules, is there's only paper, rock, scissors. There is no new symbols like the bomb or anything like that. It's just paper, rock, scissors. What? Seriously? Uh, yeah. yeah. Unfor- Whoa, dude. Unfortunately, I can't. I can't make a joke um, uh, because it's a visual-based joke. But there was a uh, in the Darkened Mirror, which was a Dragon Con vampire game, the last game of their chronicle, which was set in Gehenna. Uh, had Kane as an NPC, just walking around. As you do. As you do, just walking around doing stuff. Um, and they they did the chops, and um, anytime anyone would like challenge Kane, it would be like, rock, paper, and then he would just flip them the bird. No. Uh, and that was, that was an official game mechanic. Yeah, was, STI win. It was just like, no, just go fuck yourself, because uh, I'm Kane. Kane. Uh, there was <laughs> one guy uh, who like came up and did a challenge to Kane, uh, and he did the one, two, fuck yourself. Uh, and then uh, the guy showed him his character sheet, and they did a legitimate challenge after that. Turns out that was the Wraith of Abel. Whoops. As you do. Which like, <laughs> legit. Yeah, can do that. Little heady for a Dragon Con game, but okay. Well, yeah. this was one of those games that... Ran the, at conventions repeatedly. Yeah, it, yeah. like it, it was cannot. It was it was continuous. It every year was a new iteration mm-hmm. on the same timeline of what was going on. It was a chronicle, and so it was very yeah. interesting. Before before the era of Nightfall, uh, which people of, of Dragon Con attendance might recognize, Dark and Mirror was the big vampire, and game. Liquid Dreams as well. Liquid Dreams, that's right. I think no, the Liquid Dreams was the one that ran Dark and Mirror. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah. I'm actually still friends on Facebook with some of those guys. They're just doing their own thing I now. What are they? What are they doing nowadays? A lot of different things. They've not really one group anymore. They're just all over the place. I'd, I'd be you interested know. to know what those those guys are doing. Well, we'll have to check it out. You guys should too. Yeah, yeah. we will. Um, but anyways, uh, let's move along. Oh, one last thing I want to say about the, the rules. Um, I literally like the revisions of it. I'm sure if time goes on, we'll probably have a longer talk about it. But in general, I would definitely recommend if you are any remotely interested in live action role playing and you're interested in werewolf, go out, pick up the book, read it. There's some really cool revisions to not only canon, but also the mechanics to make things much smoother for a LARP setting, which hopefully... Now that we're going to go into the main topic, you'll all start understanding once we do talk about well, it. Maybe bi- learn again. Oh yeah, the By Night Studios Vampire uh, revision update, new version was fucking genius. Yep. Uh, so I have high hopes for for Werewolf. From yep. what I've read of it, this actually takes lessons they learned from BNS Vampire and then reiterates on those lessons, yes. which makes it an even better game uh, in terms of design. So yeah. by the time we're playing Mage, it'll all just be fucking like. I don't know. We'll just be an energy all- beings. Yeah, energy beings playing in VR AR space. Uh, oh man, you're not very far off. You just actually. open. You just open the book and and you're you're there. Uh, <laughs> you're magically transported into your character. Oh god. No. Yes, the power of imagination. Yeah, and then AR. then the last AR, one they do yeah. is changeling. The last thing they do is changeling, and then well, then we all have to drop acid before. <laughs> <it ends. laughs> I, I wonder if they will do changeling or if they'll do something like wraith. That'll be interesting. Wraith uh, 20 uh, Kickstarter is in the works. It yeah. is coming down the pipeline soon. Well, I mean, if their if their model has pr- proven true, 
they will do things on the iteration of the original release schedule. Right, which would mean Changeling is next. Which would be, well, Mage next. Oh, right. No, you're right. Yeah, Mage did come yeah, out. Yeah, uh, um, Vampire, Werewolf, Mage are the Holy Trinity. Um, right. Like, they're, those are the three flagships. And all the other games kind of, not, I wouldn't say lesser, but they're, they are... Niche. They they're are very more, niche. They're more niche. So, Fringe. So it would be Mage and then Changeling and then Wraith and then, like, demon and mummy if they even go that far because it, by that point hunter oh hunter the raccoon i would love to see actually <laughs> hunter the reckoning done in lark rules because i think that'd be super fun like because vigil you don't more. have to be not a human i like vigil more i never really got into vigil i'll be honest never i never gotten to play a hunter game so i come from the weird position of having learned new world after classic world which means that i like some new worlds better than classic world and some classic world better than yeah, new world. It, it oh, yeah. printed on you well, I, I kind of have a mix, because I like Masquerade more than Requiem, I like Lost more than Dreaming, I like Awakening more than Ascension, but I like Apocalypse more than Forsaken. Which is weird, because I, I like Forsaken more than oh, I like Apocalypse. Forsaken is butt. I, love, <laughs> I, I, like, I like the focus, it's more on the pack and, and the pack dynamics. Yeah, it, it's butt for LARP, I should say. This is all in context of LARP, what I'm saying right now, by the way. Yeah, um, but anyway. anyways, so since we've been talking about LARP and all that... Obviously, we've talked before about what is LARP. It's live-action role-playing. We're not going to go into the bare-bones basics here. Because we already have. Yes, go back to a previous episode. Go listen episode. to that episode. I believe it was episode four or five. Probably now. Link in the description. Yeah. Or just scroll down. <laughs> uh, so, you know what live-action role-playing is, and we're going to talk about how you design a live-action role-playing game. Um, for the basic primer of general, like, how to do game design, go back to our previous episode 19 with Michael. All of those questions that we had to try to answer, those all apply here. But I think what's interesting about live action is you have to take in consideration that you are no longer just playing in the mind, the theater of the mind. You are playing in physical real world space. Um, Over an extended period of time that may be longer than what your general tabletop session might be. And if you die in the game, you die for real. Brazilian no, rules. No, 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 no. We'll talk about Brazilian rules here in a minute. Eh. But that's why Dylan's here, because hey. uh, it's something we haven't mentioned, is that he designed, um, with obviously some help, uh, the after-the-end live-action role-playing game. It's a buffer game, but I think his direct experience at designing something, both mechanically and setting-wise, will be very important to this conversation. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, Dylan, about that experience, and then we can sort of build off that conversation so the first thing i want to do like before i get into that too deep is i want to kind of draw a parallel uh that regards something we were just discussing uh the differentiation between a tabletop and a larp and what i'm going to say here applies actually both to parlor and boffer larp it's one of these universal yep. truths although it applies more so the boffer larp um when i studied film in college one of the things that stood out to me was a comparison that my professor made uh which was that the fundamental difference between a movie and a story in another medium like a book was that there was a lock between the action of the movie media and time itself. Which is to say that as time moved forward, the movie itself moved forward, and they were locked together. Whereas when you read a story, they aren't locked together. They, they're asynchronous. Yes. You can, you can take a break, you can step away, you can come back, you can go backwards, you can flip the page either direction, and, and you can the story, skip around. And, and the story can jump forward, too. Exactly. Um, and what, I'm, what, I, what I mean here is more so from the perspective of the audience or the consumer of the media, less than the narrative itself. And that's the difference between tabletop and LARP. A tabletop, the DM can say, guys, we're going to take a 30-minute break. 
and you can step away from the table and you can come back and there's no interruption or strangeness to the flow or the narrative. A LARP does not have that privilege or, or that, that possibility. Uh, a LARP, once you hit the start button, that bitch keeps rolling and rolling and rolling for as long as you're going to keep playing. And there's a direct link between time and action in the narrative. If a 10 minutes pass, 10 minutes pass in the game. And that fundamentally alters everything about writing a tabletop game versus writing a LARP. Because when you write a LARP, you have to take into account a completely new aspect and a completely new vector of the player's interaction with the game world and with each other, and that's time. Ten minutes means a lot more in right. a LARP setting than it does in a tabletop so, so setting. So if you're playing a tabletop, you're playing, say, Mage the Awakening, you're like, I'm going to do this ritual, it takes three hours. And the, the GM might say, all right, roll the dice. Okay, three hours pass and you cast the spell. Right. Can't do that in LARP. If you're writing, yeah, if you're, if you're doing a LARP, it's either... I mean, you either don't have that, or you hand wave it, or you sit there for three hours. Hand waving can happen, but it's hours. seriously disruptive to the suspension of disbelief. It, it because does. Because part of the desire for LARP is to be as immersive as possible. It's live action. That's right. the whole you, point. You're trying name. to be there. You're yeah. trying to be in the time right. and the space. Right. That's very insightful. Thank you very much for that. Uh, that's that's actually a perspective I never really thought about as far as what is it like to be in a live action space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what Dylan just brought up, that's something that sort of hits on a lot of different things as far as live action, because you're physically there, you have to deal with the constraints of physicality, of physicality, mm-hmm. um, being the person that you are. And so like, what would you guys consider some of the like other aspects of live action design that you would need to consider? Sleep. Sleep is an uh, important. That falls under physicality. I, yeah. I uh, well, well I mean, it's, it's still, I mean, I, I mean, don't I know. I think it's tantamount. Actually. I think that's, that, that's something you address with setting, not so much with roles. Um, because it's sort of like the design philosophy of this of not just the setting, but how you want to approach your game to the players. And, and that's one of the, that's an example of a challenge you can't pose to people in a realistic or immersive sense that you can do in tabletop. In tabletop, you can say your characters don't sleep for three days; you're exhausted. Here are the mechanical effects of exhaustion, but you, they don't you, feel exhausted. Right. You have to abstractly represent things like exhaustion and other legitimate dangers to a player's physical form. In a LARP, unless you're going to go so hardcore, and I don't recommend this, there are some people who do this, and if you do this, you know, more power to you, but not my jam. I know a guy who actually went 24 hours without sleep for a LARP one time. As, like, an in-character thing, he decided to also go 24 hours without sleep because his character was. And, right. you know, cool for him, and he was happy with it, but that shouldn't be, like, a, a requirement. M- meanwhile... And so if I want to make your character <laughs> exhausted, I have to use a, a, an abstracted mechanical representation of that exhaustion... I can't literally have you not sleep or torture you in real life until you're exhausted because and that's not good. And after the end, a few weekends ago, I did for just for whatever reason, I ended up not sleeping like on Saturday night, and it it ruined me. Yeah. Like yeah. as of nine a.m., I was you were done. I you were done. done. I was so. I remember so seeing you finish. Be, yeah. be done. Yes, <laughs> you, you and, and, like you had your stuff in your hand. You're like, I am leaving. Like not in character accent. I am leaving. Yeah. And, and that's what we're talking about, the sort of the physicality, the sleep, the exhaustion. That has a lot more to do with Boffer LARP because Boffer LARPs yes. tend to be right. multiple days. You're sleeping where you're supposed to be, where your character is. You, you are your character. And that has a more pressing concern that you have to mitigate as far as when you're running the game for your players. Where Salon typically is six to eight hours on a given Saturday, Friday, There's whatever day it is. There's certainly an element, though. 
But there's still certainly an element of physicality in parlor. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that's also another thing. Not just the physicality of the player or even the staff is the space you are in. Yes. Salons typically, uh, because of you've got somewhere between 10, let's say 10 and 30-ish, 40-ish, maybe Or 300. Yeah, or yeah, ridiculous like big conventions and stuff. You have to worry about space, and obviously you can't rep all the space that all these characters want to go out and do. Whereas Boffer Larp tries to do that, they have the same potentially the same number, but they have more times than not, in my experience, a actual park, someplace that has multiple acres that you can play around in. Whereas something like a vampire salon LARP, you have maybe someone at his house with like four or five rooms. That's about it. Community center, something like that. Atmosphere is very important. College campus. Yes. Yes. Um, All of these, while very interesting, these are more like logistical running the LARP issues. I completely disagree Uh, with that, but continue. Well, I mean, okay. Well, um, perhaps we should pivot then in how then do you represent that that sort of thing mechanically? Like, since we are talking about LARP design mechanics. Yes. Well, mechanics are not the be-all, end-all of design. I think that's a common misconception of people who haven't uh, done that, like sure. our listeners who have Your setting plays a part in it, it doesn't, just... it, it's, it's more than that. It, it is a, a fundamental intertwining, in my opinion. Uh, uh, your, oh. your mechanics must represent your setting, and your setting also must be cognizant of your mechanics, because otherwise there's a lot of cognitive dissonance yeah. that just very quickly sets in when you start running a plot. So what you're talking about is more like approach. When everything comes yes. together, the the staff's approach to the game... Well, it's holistic, is yeah. basically what I'm getting at. So take After the End, for example... When we did After the End, we started with some elements of setting. We decided what themes we were going to do, what kind of setting we were going to do, and we crafted the mechanics around creating an experience that matched the experience of the setting. And then as we tinkered with the mechanics, we also tinkered with the setting to bring the two closer and closer together so that things that happened in the game world felt consistent and meaningful. Right. I think the best way that we could probably describe what he is talking about as an example is how we heal. Like, how we recover from mortal injury. Right. Because in real life, if I were to be, you know, riddled with bullets to the point of, you know, being within an inch of death, it would probably take me more than, say, five minutes to get up. Correct. But because of how the setting of After the End functions, we know that we all have a nano cloud that sort of reconstructs us pretty quickly so that the doctors who work on us know how to manage that sort of thing to accelerate our healing to the point where we're just back up. And, and so, and and give you a little bit of backstory, just because we're using After the End as a raw example. After the End is a LARP that Dylan and his friends designed. It is a post-apocalyptic, cyber, sci-fi, western. That's the sum up. And so... They shoved a lot into that picnic basket. Very multi-genre. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. I missed the joke. I said they... Sh- well, no. I, I just don't know the reference. A picnic basket? Picnic basket? I, I thought there was Ooh, a hey, different boo-boo. reference. Okay, fine. All right, it, it we're, we're in the 60s. That's fine. I'm just making sure. <laughs> You're um, right. Okay. Anyway, so to loop that back around to what you were saying, Scott, to, to why I disagree that there, there's any real barrier between managing physicality and managing mechanics... Uh, is that I think when you know you're going to have to manage certain elements of physicality, as we do in a buffer LARP, we then therefore endeavor to integrate those into both the setting and the mechanics, right? Travel is difficult, therefore that explains why you don't often leave town by a, sure. by a large distance. Uh, other games, like Force of the Doors, have a more mystical uh, explanation of that. You know, in Force of the Doors, the world literally changes around you when you walk out of town. And yeah. that's why you can't just travel to the next settlement without using a skill. Yeah, and sure, you right. need a door to go beyond this world right. to another world. It's, um, a, it's, a, it's an inference. Because you're dealing with the physicality of being in 
a park, which we're not going to run. We're not going to get in our cars. We're not going to go to another part of the park to just do the game. We have to stay within our own confines. Now, Salon breaks that obviously because because it's generally a much smaller space. They have to go. Well, I want to go. Let's say you're playing a game that's in Atlanta. It's like, well, I want to go down to the aquarium, but you're at Joe Bob's house up in fucking Decatur or something, and you're like, okay, well, I had to go, so we have to block out and sort of be locationally challenged geo fucked geo yeah. fucking <laughs> well we summon the dread dragon marta yeah uh. so funny story just to, to do a little archaeology for those who aren't familiar with larping as a hobby uh you know back in like the mid 1990s when vampire the masquerade as a larp kicked off that was not the case the venue for Vampire the Masquerade, in many cases, was an entire city or an entire downtown yeah, of a city. Yeah, where you were was where and you were. you would actually fizz rap or physically represent your location in the world by fucking going there. And you would be in character the whole time. And, and uh, that's not really pertinent to anything, I guess, but it's just an interesting thing to consider that that was a model that well, was used. It was, it was very ambitious. Yeah. I, it was amazing. Actually, yes, but it's also very design way and somebody said immature because it's like we want to emulate a lot of buffer and salon rules when I, I see this a lot is hey I have this pre-existing idea setting and I want to translate it one for one into the live action space and when you do that there are a lot of errors that come and I think that's an example of that of that immaturity yes. of thinking in that oh well where you are is where you are because that's how you do it. it's like no, you limit a lot of storytelling by doing that. And so that's why, going back to our news, when the new werewolf rules are out, they do a lot of revision of the rules that we were not expecting. And a lot of people have cried like, hey, it's not the werewolf that I remember. It's like, no, they've changed to make it easier, more accessible, and more manageable in a live action setting yeah. than in a tabletop setting, which is is very mature in yep. my mind. The, so, um, that was actually a pertinent story. To, to yeah. draw a parallel uh, between what Dylan was talking about and the new newest edition of Vampire LARP, uh, there are Elysium rules yep. uh, in, in Vampire that, that very firmly define, you know, you are in a specific space for the purposes of this. And if you are going outside of that space, that requires direct to ST interaction uh, and that sort of thing. But it, it really tightens the focus mm -hmm. of the game and saying, no, this building is important in play and that's why you're here and that's why you want to stay here. and there are it's, mechanics yeah. to reinforce that and disincentivize you from leaving that space which it, is fantastic because that's really what the focus of the empire should be it should it, be around at least well, and, it, and it and it creates more immersion uh mm -hmm. because it means that it, it focuses the presence of the game in the in the building that you are most easily able to fizz rep by whatever site you're using mm -hmm. um and mechanically constrains the players to be there uh, so that there can be less, you know, locationally challenged, less any of that, because mechanics make you want to be in that building. Correct. And it allows you to create your immersion um, by focusing your attention on that space. Which is funny. If you think about tabletop for a second, it's all about suspension of disbelief, and it can come pretty readily, just like watching a movie or reading a book. But in some respects, we if you try to use that same level of suspension of disbelief in a LARP setting where that expectation is, it 
actually breaks the game. Mm -hmm. It actually like detracts from what you're trying to do, which I find fascinating because it's like we're still make believe here, well, but we're trying to make believe as less as least as well, possible. And I think on that point, we should make a distinction between parlor and boffer. Yes, because parlor is much less negatively impacted. I I always like to liken to go back to my earlier statement a little bit. Uh, a tabletop is kind of like writing a book together. And a boffer game is kind of like watching a movie in a theater together, where Very you can't so. really disrupt it. And a parlor game, to me, is kind of the missing link between the two, that is kind of like watching a Netflix movie together, where if you have to, you can pause, rewind, and flop around, or switch to a whole different movie. And you have control over that, but it's still a little bit jarring, and you should minimize it for the best experience. I, I, You know, and interestingly enough, I think what, what I'm seeing now, and what I've, you know, just pulling it all the way back to the abstract, LARPs now, like the now that they're kind of focusing on a central, you know, a central hub where everyone is and where everyone kind of wants to be, goes back to the oldest adage that one, a person who has played tabletop will tell you, don't fucking separate the party yep. because no one wants to run all that side shit. And it's just, you know, the game is a better thing when, ev when most of the time everyone's in one place, the GMs can either, the GMs or GM can focus all their resources into the area, into that one area. Well, to get so. the highest return on their investment of time. Mm -hmm. right. right, because in typical, like, also, this is another sort of physicality and limitation of Boffer Alarm. Okay, tabletop, you got five, six dudes maybe in one GM. And a Boffer Alarm, or Salon Alarm, I apologize, is typically one, maybe two or three GMs for 30 or 40 dudes, and that stretches your, um, the, the, thing, the, the narrative power of your GM's um, t pretty much close to their breaking point. Um, my ratio is always like one to six in any game. So if you you need to have that to sort of entertain everyone, if if you want to have constantly things clicking in your I've, game, I've always kind of thought about it as like each like w one table's worth in yep. big quotation marks per GM. And, and uh, the formation. This is a very very common thing in BNS Vampire and BNS Werewolf. Uh, formation of player oriented and player defined groups actually reflect upwards and increase the efficiency of GM time expenditure. Yes. Because they can target with plot more people more effectively for a higher return in terms of how interesting and how So like your coven, your yeah. coterie, which your is, pack. Which is yeah. actually something that you are emulating a lot in ATE with Absolutely. the boss mechanics. Absolutely. So and after the end, for those who aren't familiar, uh, you, by purchasing a skill called Diplomacy, you can choose to choose an ability within Diplomacy that lets you build a posse and you, with a posse, you have a number of other players in your posse, and you all have to wear a symbol that shows you all roll together, and you guys are... Are, are part of the same group. You're a Wild West gang. Uh, we have a we have a, a group of, uh, of uh, you know, individuals of ill repute uh, called the, the Good Samaritan Cartel. We have a group of... Uh, I do not know what you're talking about. We are, we are, we are just the Good Samaritans. We have a group of high-class uh, saloon workers uh, with a little something extra on the side called the Soil Dove Saloon. We have another posse that's forming up. I don't think they have a name yet. No, they don't. They're basically like a Star Trek goody goody fucking. Like they want to be the ultra good, yeah, good posse. They're the super super good guys, and they have their symbol, and everybody's symbols kind of reflects who they are. Um, and when they do that, it allows us to just aim and fire a plot that is guaranteed to entertain eight to nine people automatically with very little thought, and it right. really it, it, lets us get a lot of extra mileage because they've stuff. they've they've put their thing. They yeah. put like this is what we're interested yep. in. Fire something like this in our direction, and it'll—it's an easy target. Exactly. And oh, then again, you have weirdos like my character, who's just too weird to do anything and like fine. that. As long as the people running the game yeah. don't rely completely on these group mechanics, which is, in my opinion, actually one of the weaknesses of Werewolf that is partially addressed 
by the new BNS Werewolf mechanics. Being in a pack isn't so super necessary. It's Being between very, packs is it's very, okay. very useful, and it incentivizes you to. But it is not a negative to not be right. in a pack. It just means you're you're not going to get some of the cool nuggety juiciness Correct. there in order to like to have fun and to do stuff with the game. Indeed. Um, I I really enjoy the idea of like that targeted fun, that idea that you can have the loners and the groups together. Um, but obviously you're going to still want to have personal plot. Oh, that was my thought. That was my train of thought. Expectations. I think this goes across anything that we've said about both tabletop and live action is expectations. The players expecting a certain thing and the GMs and the STs expecting a certain thing from their players and everyone making sure they meet in the middle as mm-hmm. far as that is concerned. If you're going to design a live action game because you have a few more limitations and constraints on it, you need to really think hard about what does my setting say and what will my players expect from this setting? And then on the side, what they expect from the mechanics because the mechanics are supposed to, you know, work and do the thing they're supposed to do. Uh, I will say in my experience, the most important question you need to ask is who gives a shit about my game? Hmm. What kind of player am I writing a game for? Because uh, as Mark Rosewater famously said about game design, you don't want a bunch of six and sevens across the board. You want 50% ones and twos and 50% nines and tens. You don't want to actually please everybody. That is a foolish goal, especially when writing a live-action game. Tabletop game, somebody can pick and choose, and they can use the parts of your tabletop game that are most appropriate to their table, and they have control over that. But in a, in a, in a LARP, whether that's Parlor or Boffer, it is a direct pipeline from the game creators and the, and the content creators who are the storytellers of the game directly down into the players. And so you have to basically come to terms with the fact that you cannot write a game that everyone likes. There are too many play styles. There are too many preferences. It is just not possible. And the sooner you come to terms with that and you double down on the kind of game you do want to run and you double down on the, on the double down on the kind of game you want to be, the better your game also, will be. Also, the type of people you want to attract exactly. to the game. Exactly. Because after, after if the they end, come to the game going, this is a game I'm already intrigued by, exactly. chances of them actually enjoying the game are much higher than just taking a random dude off the street and, and throwing him in. With After the End, we put a lot of the stuff on the tin because it was a big part of our design process. We put right on the tin, this is gonzo sci-fi, straight up. Like, this this is not hard sci-fi, like super hard sci-fi. This is not going to have real science in it. Don't come expecting that. This is also not a fantasy game. Don't come expecting that. We're just not running that game. Right. And we said that right up front because we would rather have less people having more fun. And as a non-profit well, actually, we're not technically a nonprofit, but as a game that is not a profit-oriented business, yeah, uh, that it has more artistic integrity, I guess. And I'm going to get a little highfalutin here, I guess. Um, but I think that is a very important thing for small-time and non-commercial LARPs to to admit is that you're only going to appeal to so many people. You need to admit to yourself that that is true, and you need to make yourself the absolute best you can be. In the niche that you are selecting. So I'm going to run to an analogy in the indie video game development. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's exploded so recently is people have started realizing indie games for a lot less money. We can hyper-focus our, our narrative, what we're trying to do with this game, and find the audience. Because I only need to find five, ten thousand 10,000 people to buy my game to fund this game and to keep the money rolling in. I mean, I don't need, it doesn't need to be a triple A title that gets millions and millions. Combine that with crowdfunding and yep. uh, you, you can just make the game. That opened the, the gateway right there. Crowdfunding mm-hmm. is the revolution of direct, direct player, and audience uh, feedback directly into the creators rather than having any sort of intermediate 
publicist PR, all that stuff sort of starts melting away. And, uh, it's, it's the democratization of art. And ATE uh, started with some crowdfunding. Yeah, we, we did some, some light crowdfunding that we actually got a pretty good amount of money from. Um, and, you know, that, that I'll be honest, isn't a great example of the democratization aspect because we came to the table with the Kickstarter. It wasn't actually Kickstarter. It was an in-house crowdfund. We came to the table with that crowdfund after we'd already run several games of playtesting and things were more or less set. So I can't claim that we were, you know, necessarily harnessing the full power of crowdfunding, but crowdfunding was definitely an essential part. It helped. uh, It was an essential part of us being able to set down a schedule sooner and to give the people uh, a little bit more reliability and a little more solidity in the game, which, in my opinion, did add to the quality of the game. So certainly I will champion crowdfunding in my experience. Um, And actually, you bring up a very good point. Thank you, Scott, about the idea of something you need to consider for Salon and Boffer. There is a financial... Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a financial responsibility you will have more than a tabletop game. Tabletop game, you buy a couple books... Maybe somebody, a couple of people can share. You buy a few dice, you're good. You you, get, you make a little, have a little pocket change. You can have as much fun, fun for hours. But for a salon, you potentially have site rental costs. You have multiple people buying multiple books. You have costuming. You have all that. Boffer is even more so because the oh, sites are more expensive. You have to get all the physical weapons so you can beat people up. Food. Yep. Food. Food. Makeup. Um, uh, props. Yeah. Props. <laughs> equipment like a uh, tarp stuff like that yeah. it's it's expensive it, it gets expensive but you get if you do it right and you are diligent and motivated you get a lot more reward personal reward out of it i think because you're trying so hard to bring the the, the fantasy into reality uh there was a really good article and we'll put the put a link to it uh in the uh in the doobly-doo um that i read recently it was more but mostly focused on nordic larp uh, but it it sort of broke down the the what you can expect from a five dollar LARP, a ten dollar LARP, yep. a fifty dollar LARP, a thousand dollar LARP. Oh, please, please show me this article. Oh I'll put God. it in there. It's a good article. Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it it really focused on the sort of the Nordic side of thing, as evidenced by the the weird currency number that they symbol <laughs> that they use that I don't understand. Um, but it was really good, and it had a lot of apl- applicability. Um, in regards to this aspect of, of the funding. I've only uh, ever played a $50 LARP, mm-hmm. and it's pretty good. I yeah. wonder what the $1,000 model gets you. It's crazy. Uh, the $1,000 model gets you, uh, like, a castle yeah. uh, and a costume yep, and just just a ridiculous thing. But the point of the article was that um, from a running-the-game perspective, at a certain degree, your margin of, of being able to... Um, run like the hollywood level awesomeness is not high right uh because you know even with a thousand dollars there's a ceiling there's, yeah. a, there's a ceiling of how much first of all you still you're still like six people yeah with with the limitations on your own crafting capability and what can be done also your own time and your time you're probably not doing this full time this oh uh, but anyone anyone's getting some some stars in their eyes about oh i'm gonna run larps and i'll that'll be how i how i make my living Nope. Oh, you, Walk away. You, uh, you sweet summer child. Yeah. I, I say you should do it. I disagree. I, okay, Go for it. Try. You'll learn a lot of valuable life lessons. That's all I'm saying. You will learn something. Believe in your dreams. Don't let your dreams be dreams. Um, but, I, but what the article mentioned was that it, it was really a battle against player expectations. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. players expect for a $1,000 game 
everything to be a thousand dollar level. X-Wings. Where, where like 75% of that thousand dollars went to renting Sci- the goddamn castle. Right. Yeah, Sci- uh, rental fees will blow your goddamn mind. Yeah, like, that does a big chunk of it. That is uh, a huge just, chunk of it. For our listeners, I'm sure not. I'm sure we don't have that many actual LARPers listening to this. The main site that we use for like a lot of uh, Forest of Doors being my my touchstone example for this is a fourteen hundred dollar per weekend rental per night. No, no. Indian Springs is 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 four digits per night, my friend. Oh my! Yeah. Well, it's a big site. Well, it's air conditioned. And... I mean, whereas on the other end of things, the, the, the other site that we use a lot, Harrison Bay, which is in uh, southern Tennessee, uh, whereas uh, Indian Springs is in mid Georgia, um, is three hundred dollars for a weekend. Yeah. However, which... they should start giving us a discount because someone's going to contract the Zika virus. They're working on it. Yeah. We should be uh, nice. Also, to them. it's the idea of also different states are going to have different rules and different funding for their sites. We love so them. you need to look into that. Also, um, if you're looking for salon sites, um, sometimes Community churches centers. are actually what? Community centers. Community centers. Churches. Actually, churches sometimes are totally cool and they'll let you use your space to yeah, You can totally go be a uh, satanic vampire in the church. Yeah, I, I never had much luck talking to churches to run my Satan vampire game. You just don't tell them it's Satan vampire game. Nope. Tell it's the Happy Inter- Jesus game. Interactive theater. Yeah. That's all you community have Community theater. Anyway, uh, I, I want to bring this back in unless there's any sure. other super no, Sure, go ahead. Uh, back to the, the topic of, of actually designing, you know, building with the blocks of the LARP. We've talked a little bit about physicality. Yep. We talked about player expectation. Both of these are very important. But I think all of us really kind of want to get down to the brass tacks of how do you make it work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Things like balance, uh, things like encounter design, and things like that. And these mm. are all very deep things that we're only going to be able to do kind of an overview on, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, this um, isn't this is a, your master class of how, how to design well, a LARP. I, I should mean, do that, though. You should. Um, I mean, Dylan and I have spent an unbelievable amount of time just sitting around bullshitting on this particular subject. I, I believe I have spent at least 1,000 hours of my life <laughs> talking about LARP. You're uh, almost to master. It takes 10,000 hours to master a single skill. Some made-up number. Well, that was a 1,000 talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's only like... That's not counting, math. That's not counting count. the, the working on it or the doing it. <laughs> so, so which, of those, which of those topics do you want to hit uh, on? The, yeah. the big one I want to touch on is... Uh, it's kind of connected to what I was saying about setting and mechanics running together. Okay. Uh, and, and it actually kind of touches on player expectation mm-hmm. a little bit. To, to me, it's uh, best described as managing player behavior. And when you when I say that, you're probably thinking of it as like a big brother, you got to beat the players and make sure they don't cheat or be shitheads. And I'm saying what might literally be the most exact opposite thing of that. Well, it's, um, it's in this case, setting up your mechanics so that the player's want to do the thing you want them to do Bingo. without having to make them do anything. You never want to make anyone do anything. You also never want to assume that anyone is acting in bad faith. Right. And that, I think, is the fundamental flaw in a lot of boffer LARPs and in a fair number of parlor LARPs is that they come from a position of paranoia. Uh, and what you find is that simply does not function on scale. The percentage of your effort as a staff that you have to put into to, to micro-policing and making sure people don't cheat or whatever is actually staggering. So I've actually run two two Boffer LARPs and several Parlor LARPs in my day. I wrote both the Boffer, Boffer LARPs. And the first Boffer LARP that I wrote, we had kind of this micro-policing culture, and I spent a an upsetting amount of every weekend calling people on stuff, 
often when there wasn't actually an issue, questioning and interrogating people on things and trying to figure out how they use certain rules, answering rules questions, addressing accusations between players. And all of this came because we, on the, the logistical side of it and on the design side of it, made the mistake of coming from a position of paranoia. And because we did that, that imbued the game that we created with a culture of mechanical paranoia and of mechanical uh, policing. And both of these things draw away from the, the core experience. So that's the number one thing I would advise. If you're going to write a game, just assume everyone's cool. I know it sounds really counterintuitive and gaming culture has a really big focus on making sure people don't cheat or power game or whatever. Fuck it. Just don't. Don't do that. It's hard enough to run a game out already. Don't put more on your plate. Also, cheaters will cheat regardless. Eventually, they will exactly. be caught, caught regardless doing something so fraudulent that it, you, there's no argument or, to if they actually well, they'll get caught or they won't get caught. Or yeah. they won't, and no one will know or give a shit. Yeah. And that's... But if you build your game and you make it kludgy or annoying in certain ways as a policing mechanism, right. the cheaters will still look for ways to countermand that, and your honest players now have to do all the kludgy bullshit mechanism. Yeah. So you fucked everyone. You fucked so, yourself, you fucked the cheaters, and you fucked the good guys. Uh, which I want to point out is, in my experience, because I'm an old school vampire salon LARPer, and vampire is already a game about paranoia. Mm-hmm. Now take that to another degree when the mechanics itself try to police you into into that level of paranoia. It is, it's actually less the mechanics and yeah. more the culture. It yeah. would, well, but that reinforced the culture. All of it fed into each other. It is really hard to uh, play a paranoia based game where you know you want your the characters to be hyper aware and paranoid and super on edge about, you know, the precarious nature of their undead lives, um, when at the same time, the players of those characters are worried that they are going to get fucked. Right. Uh, or or if you're, like, constantly... It's a, it's immersion-breaking to have to watch for rules violations. Yes. Yeah. Because how can I be in the moment if if I'm policing... If I'm in a fight with Dylan, and he we're calling our taglines back and forth, it takes me out of the moment of our really awesome fight. If Hold I have, on, how'd you do that? How did you yeah, block if, that? Because I, you can't block my attack because so's a rule. Yeah, like, it really screws everything like, up. Why am I spending this time saying that, right? When like, I could sucks. just trust that you have a way to do that. We, we could be using that effort to be like, I will defeat you, foul demon. You yeah. Know? Like, that's so much more fun. Yeah, it's way cooler. Yeah. Um, so what was the uh, next thing you were talking about? That was your first main thing of... Yeah, that's kind of actually my... That's kind of my book before you, you open the manual. That's yeah. like on the front cover. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just like, people are going to cheat. Don't worry about it. Also, most people who are, quote, cheating, end quote, aren't actually cheaters. They just fucked up. Mm. Uh, LARPs are ridiculously complicated. And the entire intention of LARP is to uh, induce stressful situations in a controlled environment. It's funny. It's just a sort of a side note. Uh, I always find it funny because I'm a rules guy. So when I go to a game, I start digesting as many rules. Even the rules that I'm not, my character is not concerned with. I am amazed repeatedly about over people who have played the game for years are like, I don't know what that is. Right. I only care about my own mechanics. I'm like, why have you not tried to read... Outside it, of the system. So that actually, funny enough, segues into what I was about to say. Great. Which is, you need to write your game so that it, it is encapsulated, and so that it is not one huge interconnected web that you have to comprehend everything in to play proficiently. So you need to make sure that everything about the game on a basic level is easy to grasp, and that all of the complexity is added into the game in a manner that does not get in the way of people who have no idea what the fuck they are doing playing your game. 
And that is another big difference between a LARP and a tabletop. Tabletops are very easy to practice for. They're easy to listen to. They're easy to learn because there are people who record their sessions. You can sit in on somebody's session relatively easily. You can run a little solo game. There's usually example modules and none of that shit exists for Boffer LARP specifically and mostly for Parlor LARP. The only real way to learn LARP is to LARP. That is true. Uh, and spectators are generally frowned upon because they're just a, a pain in the ass and they're hard to manage because you have to make sure they don't get involved in the game. You have to watch them. You're responsible for also, them. Also, your players just probably and, find it a little loogie. It, it is weird. Um, and so because of this, and this is another restriction of the medium thing, you have to make sure that, that to step on that first step from zero LARP to one LARP XP is a very, very easy little step. Yep. And there can be a million more steps up on the stairway of mechanical mastery after that, but that first step needs to be very, very easy. Right. You and the way you achieve that, the way you achieve that, and I'm, I'm going to ramble here for a second, sorry, but the way you achieve that is by making a system that is very modular so that you only have to learn the modules that your guy can do, and it's very easy to learn the, the, the elements and the components of the system that are done to you by making them intuitive. So for example, and after the end, the very basic system is, it's very simple, right? If you show up to the game, not even including what your CP expenditures are, learning how combat works is easy. You have a certain number, stuff does one, unless they say a number, and then it does the number. You subtract that number from your number, and then some stuff happens. It's very straightforward. Anyone can learn that. Whereas once you start spending CP, now you're like, well, but I have these other resources that I can spend to do this and this, but I could combo this with this. Oh, but my friend has these skills, and if we work together, then we can achieve this. And that is all built up from this bedrock of simplicity. And then you add the modules and the components from each person's selection. In ATE, when you start expending CP, you're also saying... I'm buying into the more complex rules. Correct. I'm saying I, my, my character and myself are more mature to handle more complicated things, which is a perfect way to design the system. Now, I will say, and I'm going to preface this as a little bit counter to what you've been saying. Though Dylan is coming from this approach, and this, but this is his philosophy, there are other ways to do it. Yes. You need to find what works best for you. However... Rubber will meet the road eventually, and you all, as we've said in the previous episode about game design, when your game starts running, especially if you designed it from the ground up, you have to be willing to go, you know what, this is not working, this needs to get removed, and I need to replace it. So I'm just putting like a word of caution. What Dylan here said is very, very good and solid advice, and I, I encourage it, but also you should be, feel free to experiment with what You'll you You'll find your do. own method. Right. I mean, as as an example, there are games out there like uh, Solar and Nero, um, games that have been have been running in one form or another for goddamn ever, uh, and are still based on you know that they don't have many big rules updates, and they're still sort of like D and D simulators. They're very very complex. They have a lot of of, of baggage and errata on them, uh, and do not come from from a level of simplicity. And there are tons of people who play and enjoy that game, and there are tons of people who are new players for those games. A big um, part of that is cultural pressure. Mm -hmm. That's another element of a game design, is the design of your culture, and games like that have a lot of momentum, mm -hmm. a lot of cultural momentum. Uh, also, their their subject matter is very accessible. I think that's a... Very uh, basic. That, that plays into it a lot. Fantasy. That, go ahead. This go. is fucking Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It, it's just Lord of the Rings. This is crazy, heroic fantasy, sort right. of. Like, there's and a lich. As your <laughs> game gets more and more esoteric... You're you're you are trading 
uh, cultural pressure for that kind of ones and twos, nines and tens thing. Yeah. Solar, I would say, is a game that goes for sixes and sevens. Mm-hmm. You don't have a ton of people. Like, you have a lot of people who are very in love with it, mostly because it's a community, not necessarily because the game itself is, is in my opinion, and maybe this will be controversial, truly excellent. You know, as a game and as a system itself, it is not the best in town, but it, it's very much kind of the middle of the road, very accessible well, it's, it's, setting it's, and, mm-hmm. and community. As Ryan would say, it's Babby's first LARP. A lot of people get into LARPing, basically Buffalo LARPing, through Solar Nero because yeah. they're all over the country. Well, Nero is. Yeah, Nero is. Um, all these groups have chapters, and then their friends tell their friends, and their friends tell their friends, mm-hmm. and this is generally their first experience mm-hmm. with, with live-action role-playing, and they're like, well, that's super cool. Like, how I got Scott into live-action like into Boffer specifically, he was like, nah, I'm not into I'm it. Good. I'm good. And then I started, then I eventually pressured him to come. And then he was like, shit, you're right. Fuck, well, this was good. It was that because Force of Doors had diplomacy and mercantile. Right. Uh, and I realized that I could have all the money and I could mind control people. Um, so that was fun. I mean, and you have to ask yourself upon the design phase is that's actually a thing. Cause I don't, I have never read the rule sets for Solar. I, I have no idea. But I'm, is diplomacy yeah. a thing? So Didn't those games so. are almost the, the ninety. I would actually say one hundred percent of the rules in Solar are combat oriented, and ninety eight percent of the rules in, in Nero are, are combat oriented. I would and say that's because those are games that are about combat. So that I actually I wouldn't criticize about them. No, it's, they, it's, they chose this is a D and D simulator. D and D is a game about combat. If you think I'm wrong, fight me, and you're wrong. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely correct. Absolutely right. Uh, it's about physical martial conflict. Um, and those games simulate that, therefore those games have those rules in predominance. Uh, games like Force of Doors, Fractured, and After the End are much more oriented to a story-oriented, specifically a character drama-oriented game in the case of uh, After the End. Um, and therefore we have skills like diplomacy, performance, academics that are about interacting with the game world in a softer, a soft skill. Yeah, not not in a, a confl- direct conflicted Correct. way, physical I, way. I personally like. I am a cra- I'm a craftsperson yep. who has no, basically no in-game capability to apply the skill that I'm basically a master of. I I mean, I've only recently learned to shoot gun well, like. But that's that's you know I just chose for that because I just thought I thought well, it was interesting. Well, that's because you acknowledge the system that said, "Hey, I know I'm going to be this cool crafter guy, but it's not going to have a lot of direct in-game application. Let me start getting you a skill that I know has direct at-game application." Mm-hmm. And you were you, that's part of the game design. You have to understand what kind of players you're going to get and where are the avenues that all your players are going to interact with. Where are the fingers in those pies going to go? I think another another topic that can can be broached on this subject in regards to game design, uh, which can be you know highlighted in the the Solar versus the the Force of Doors fractured AGE thing is do you get to play your character forever? Yeah, right. So mm-hmm. that that's a I consider that actually to be a, a, a policy design. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see policy and I see setting policy and rules as being the kind of the trifecta. But it's all holistic, and mm-hmm. it all kind of combines together. In the well, end. I mean, I think I think that's a policy design that has an incredible impact on right. on mechanics. It changes pl- and it like changes said, player behavior. Like, like I said, it, it's a separate category that all feeds into the same brook, and therefore interacts with the other things. Um, I, I to underline, definitely want to 
emphasize that there's really no true walls in between those three categories. Right. Setting, policy, and 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 uh, mechanics all kind of swirl together in this this big old yeah. Pool. They're gonna touch each other and they're but, gonna affect each other. But uh, to to sort of del- delve into it, uh, games like Solar and Nero. Uh, do not have what's known as a retirement policy in, in these these other types of games, uh, where you just you can play your character forever and you can get more and more and more and more powerful. Um, uh, with I believe there might be some scaling. Uh, there. there is there is an exponential degrading advancement, but that peters out after a certain point and then becomes a, a linear advancement after a certain level of degradation. Okay, so but so you can essentially you be, you can play your character forever and get. M- more powerful, more or less. You never stop getting more powerful. Never stop right. getting more powerful. You're an immortal 20-year-old. Yeah, an immortal 20, just like the D&D. Um, and that has an effect. Yes, it uh, does. I mean, it has an effect um, on the style of play, the, st- the, the type of stories you can tell. Um, it has a definite effect on new players uh, and their experience. And power, power differentials are very yeah. important because you, you want to, like... Dylan was saying earlier, you want to grab people, you want your system to be simple, which is great, and you can do that. But if you've got guys that have been there for five or six years and they're they have no sign of leaving the game with their characters, those players are not may not stick around playing your game because they're not going to feel effective. But also, you when you're this goes into like encounter design, mm-hmm. which is hey, there's a big level sixty odd paladin running around who can just whoop ass with a lich. Guess what? My level one dude. Who who has one spell is not going to encounter that. Not impactful. Yeah, he's not going to do anything of substance, and that lessens his involvement in the game. Which involvement is what we're here for, folks. Whereas, Period. whereas in games like After the End, um, there is a retirement policy in yes. place, uh, which essentially once you hit a certain level of CP, um, you stop getting more powerful. Uh, either I mean, I I I. I that's that's an influx. At the moment, it's currently it? in flux, but but this is my preference, and I'll say this is an official. This is not an official AT statement, but the way that I envision it is: you hit a, a CP cap, and you stop earning more CP, uh, and then you can kind of adjust your existing CP a little bit per game. Hmm. But you can't get any more powerful. There, there's a limit to human ability, basically. Yeah. Like, right. You can only become so so crazy in right. your abilities. And so another version of that is: you hit a certain level of CP, and your rate of getting CP gets ratcheted down. Just to a to a drip, a crawl, a yeah. crawl, uh, and while it's, while you can get more powerful, you do not get more powerful and, at the same rate as people who and are I'll under t- that and, cap. And and the other version that we've seen in Fawn uh, Fawn Fractured is the either you hit a certain level and it's bye bye time, like you you some grand storytelling narrative is used and you are whisked away off to do something else, some bigger better thing, or uh, Fractured uses the you know your you get your trickle. But, you know, it's kind of beginning... You're yeah. going to start getting hit in the face with hooks over yeah. and over yeah. again. it's like, but please retire. The, please retire. We'll make this, it cool, but please retire. This all feeds into the fact that this is all methods of encouraging you to retire your character. Mm-hmm. Basically saying that your at least this chapter of your character's story is brought to an end. Uh, and you, as a player, are going to... That, that character is going off screen. You are not going to be playing that character as a player anymore. If it comes back on screen, it's going to be as an NPC, which is mediated between yourself and the plot staff into how it's going to impact the game. And, mm-hmm. and this uh, is, and by the way... And you play a new dude. And this is a... I mean, if you get, like, poll our general community on which of these particular methodologies is the correct, quote-unquote, correct one, you're going to get, like, 
all three answers and then five other different ones right. for how this goes what, because no in, one can agree on this. What's important is that you have a mechanic that puts a, a limit on the delta between a new character and a veteran character in a meaningful way. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't actually have to be retirement. I've seen um, explicit game duration is a perfectly good way of doing this, actually. Mm-hmm. If you say, the game lasts five years, period. Yep, the game will reset. We don't care really about how powerful you get because the game's going to be over exactly. at that time anyways. Um, uh, also, scaling up starting CP is a yes. good way of doing this. Uh, no. Calamity, a game that the Rule of Three studio is going to be doing uh, starting in March of next year, uh, what they do is half of the potential earned CP for every time they give out potential earned CP is added to starting CP for new people. Uh, so mine, after two uh, years, someone who made a new character at the beginning of year three would be equivalent to somebody who had max XP at the end of year one, right? So they're still, they scale up and they're, the delta is kept under control. Um, and that's important for reasons we're going to get to in a minute when we get to encounter design. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap this up soon because we're reaching the hour point, but we'll get to these last points. Yeah, don't worry. Don't. Maybe we'll be a part two. Maybe there will be a part two. Uh, so, uh, like you mentioned, encounter design. We should talk about that. If you want to talk about what hooks a player in and dumps that sweet, sweet endorphin into their into their bloodstream and makes them keep coming back, encounter design is probably where your where your button is. Yep, that's one of the big buttons. Uh-huh. I mean, there, and there's two two styles of it. You have you know what what's colloquially known, especially in Buffer LARP, as the field battle or the module. Uh, let me clarify even before we get into that. Um, we're probably going to talk a lot about Buffer in this. Salon is slightly different. We're we're hitting her up because of how you physically encounter combat and confrontation. The design and counter design very different. This is one of the this is one of the topics that we we're talking about where Boffer and Parlor diverge most intensely. Yeah, almost so, everything else we talked about actually is more or less the same. But this is a case where that's not the case. Right. So um, we'll talk about Boffer. In Salon, you have to deal with time, and generally combat's a lot slower. Uh, you have to deal with multiple moving parts. You have to deal with narrative description, things that will slow things down. Initiative. Initiative, stuff like that. And so when you're doing, because I know we're going to talk a lot about Boffer, and so I'm just briefly hitting the highlights here, please consider how much, how long this combat or this confrontation will last. Also, how important is combat to your game? Yes, because most parlor, most of the uh, the truly excellent parlor games have combat very rarely, far in between, and when it does happen, it's generally definitive. And and this is a, a kind of an opinionated thing, but I think that parlor games are an inappropriate venue for telling stories that are about heavy physical, uh, granular conflict. Combat systems in those sorts of games tend to be very granular, which is something I, as a designer, disagree with. But if you're going to work with a system that's very granular in combat and also very slow, you need to not have a lot of it. Right. I would agree with that. I, I have heard of some true nightmare scenarios. Yes. Uh, I have been in some true nightmare scenarios. And so so please consider that when you're if you're doing salon and you're designing a salon game, please consider that when you're going to start developing encounters. Now on to buffer, as Dylan was talking about. Okay, so the thing about encounter design, and this this what I'm about to say here does actually apply to both. Um, there are two very distinct schools of thought, and this is actually going to be somewhat controversial. Probably the most controversial thing I will say among people who are experienced with LARP stuff. Um, but the way I see it, there are two real schools of thought for encounter design. Uh, there is the agency-first encounter design, uh, and then there is the balance-first encounter design. And there's really not a right answer on this, and it very much differs from person to person. Um, I consider myself to be an agency-first person, uh, which is to say that I am more concerned with maintaining a uh, 
consist an internally consistent balance in the game world that players become more or less powerful in comparison to based on how they choose to spend their experience points and spend their in-game resources. The balance-oriented approach is to say, based on how powerful your characters are, you should design an encounter that will be challenging, taking into account how powerful your characters currently are. Um, and Also known as scaling. Yes, also known as scaling. I don't think there's anything wrong with scaling. I think the best approach is probably somewhere in between the two of these, because the worst-case scenario in either approach is nobody has fun, and that sucks. So you should right. avoid that at all costs. I mean, if you, if you, don't, if you go too hard in either or direction, you're going to find yourself in a situation where, like... Okay. If you scaled and you scaled wrong, forgot, oh my god, like, right. oh, well, he got, you know, he had an allergic reaction, so, like, your meathead is not is just not there. Oh, uh, we need to, like, either tool back the stats on these monsters, or we're going to kill literally the entire town, right. and no one's going to enjoy this. And so, so what I would say is you want to consider what the narrative impact of what you're going to put on screen is going to be once it passes through the engine that is the processing of your player's thoughts, decisions, and emotions. Okay? Uh, so what, what I mean by this is, if you decide to put an encounter on screen, it should be as hard or as easy, as complicated, as simple, as emotional, as unemotional, as metaplot related, non-metaplot related, whatever, as is necessary to achieve the effect that you're trying to elicit once it's processed through people. So for example, you shouldn't put it, in my opinion, you shouldn't put an encounter on screen that is harder just because everybody has more CP now because that invalidates what they've done to purchase CP to make themselves more powerful. It's false levels. Yeah, exactly. It's a false, uh, a false kind of sense of advancement because if, if, you, if, you, if you're going to numericize this and a starting player is power level 1 and a starting counter is power level 1 and then that player says, well, fuck, I have to become more powerful so I can defeat my enemies and then they spend their CP, they go to power level 4 and now they're power level four, so everything they fight is power level four. They didn't actually do anything. They didn't achieve anything. You don't feel more powerful. Exactly. They are by by the book more powerful, but they're actually not functionally yeah, right mm-hmm. because um, they're they're being canceled. And that's out. why you have to balance the two. Now at the same time, you have to keep an eye. And this is how I do it. If you're going to scale, you don't scale to the top. You scale to the median. So, for example, um, you know there was a LARP I played recently, fractured. Uh, where we were going the third or fourth year, and e- almost everyone's player character was a character who had been in play for a long time. So the average power level of that game was quite high, and therefore it made sense for the average power level of encounters to be quite high. But the reason for that wasn't that we wanted to make it, you know, that you necessarily want to make it challenging for specific people, but that you want to make it interesting, right? Interesting mm-hmm. is the key word. Sometimes easy encounters are interesting. Um, and you also have to take in consideration that the hardness and easiness of something is a way to express a story. Uh, so you can make an encounter really hard to make your characters go, oh, fuck, that was really hard. Why was that That's so all. hard? What is happening? It, it needs to make sense within the context of the world that you exist in. Exactly. Um, it's, it's almost like a form of Gygaxian realism that is a little bit less cruel. Mm. Uh, Gygaxian realism, I would say, would be strictly game balance. It's a strictly gamey way of looking at it. Uh, excuse me, I said that backwards. Um, it's it's a strictly um, agency way of looking at it. The world is the world. Players gain what they gain, and they do what they do in the world, and you don't give a shit. Right. So if they come up against something they have no chance of ever beating, so be it. Deal with it. They 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 somehow, hooker by crook, they landed in that situation Correct. to warrant that they elicit a response that is impossible to deal but with. But you can't hang your Saturday night field battle off an encounter that your player shouldn't do. Right. Like, that's, that's just yeah. bad storytelling. It's bad production. It's mm-hmm. bad production. Yeah, and that's the one thing that we kind of haven't really touched on. 
um, you know, I've run haunted houses and I've been a theater kid here and there. When I, when you talk about like things that push those same buttons, LARP, LARPing, like boffer LARPing oh, yeah. really hits the, you're running a, a stage like production. It's like, theater. It's theater. Interactive theater. Blocking is important. Like move, like where th- setup is important. So. Can people see you? Can people hear your cool monologue? Do they care? That's actually one of my problems. And a lot of buffer LARPs, they have the big night, big content at night. Here's the thing with content, especially if it's buffer, it's probably out in the woods. There's not a lot of light. You're not going to actually be able to see what you're looking at. You're not going to be able to aim. You're not going to be able to do all I, this stuff. Oh. So you need to consider that when you're doing with an encounter, yeah. especially a heavy role-playing encounter. Which goes back to the physical, considering uh, physicality. And and I, I've been in situations where it's been the dead, like a starless midnight, and they're like, you got to put this makeup on. I'm like, why? Why do I need makeup on? They're not going to see my face. Like... Do you think it's going to get me more into the need to beat their asses if if I have black shit on my... Probably not. Like, if you're going to do, like, a heavy makeup encounter, if you're going to do a heavy costume encounter, maybe make it in the in daylight so people can actually, you know, enjoy that. Or in a well-lit room. Or yeah. a well-lit room. Yep. Or a spookily lit room. Ooh, spooky. I like spooky lit rooms. What, what it really comes down to is, that, in my opinion, the two modes of encounter design are... One is more theata- theatrical and one is more game. Yeah. Are you running a show or are you running a game? And after the end is definitely a show. That is the style of game that we run. I don't like using that word, but uh, we we run a show. We are there to... to You're putting on a performance. It is a performative interaction. Mm -hmm. The players are also casting their lot into this group improv thing. And the rules are there as a guideline that spurs and creates interaction and reaction to create story. We are fundamentally, in my opinion, and and the rules are written with this in mind, not running a game. Right. There's no win condition. You, it's it's just an experience, right? Yep. Which, um, actually, and we're running out of time, but there's one little topic I want to hit. Or at least um, this may be something I'm going to just sort of talk at, and you guys feel free to chime in. Something you need to consider from all of everything we've said, um, and because of some situations, personal situations we've had in the past. You, especially in a salon and then to a boffer, you have to consider you are forming a community. Yes. Uh, it's not just you and your five friends. You are building something much bigger than even even the five friends that you have. You're building a network uh, um, of both of for all good and ill that, that a community brings. You are building that. And that can be extremely beautiful. It can, that can be extremely uh, reinforcing. I know so many good stories of people who have come into boffer LARPs they got to know these good friends. They become really good friends. Hell, I met my wife at a LARP same, at a Buffalo LARP. Every everyone in this room I know because of LARP. My wife I know because of LARP. Everyone I live with I know because of LARP. Almost all my friends I know because of LARP. This becomes your network, and I met we, my, I met my wife at a video store. It counts. Okay. You game with her. You your relationships are reinforced because you game with each other. I'm just being contrary. I know. But what I'm saying here is be mindful that this is going to happen. It's a natural byproduct of what you're doing. And, and be mindful of because of the type of community you try to foster with the setting, the rules, the policy, all of it, and the people, and the raw people that you're bringing into this community. Please note that that can be a great thing. It can be a bad thing. So be considerate and very mindful of who you are and who your friends are and what's going on in your community. There's a really good article uh, that I became aware of, and we'll put the the link in there. Uh, It's uh, called The Broken Stair. Um, Mm. uh, It it, it hinges around 
basically abusive people and why, you know, how, how they continue to be a part of communities and what social pressures uh, permit them. Uh, and I think that's pretty key uh, because while there can be wonderful people, there can be wonderful relationships, um, it is really important um, as not just a person who runs a game, but a person who's a part of a community. Um, I think that being aware that there are bad eggs out there and managing that situation responsibly uh, for all parties involved uh, is definitely a thing to take note of and be proactive. I have seen our, t- our, our crazy, weird little family of, of LARPs uh, drum out really, really toxic people who... Uh, and I've also seen it correct the behavior of some be- of some people who just didn't know how to be people. Like yeah. I've seen it correct their behavior and make them socially stronger. Uh, so so let's talk function on that. Um, yeah. How do you actually do this right? Um, obviously, we don't have a lot of time left, so I'll be very brief on yes, this. Yes, please. Uh, but but after the end, strategies were twofold here. One, transparency. Uh, you need to not create a stratification within your your community. You don't need to place the people who are running the game on a higher social level, a stratified social level where they're kind of like an elite ruling class yep. because that engenders resentment, that engenders entitlement, that engenders hubris. Uh, it, it, it's bad. It separates. They're separated in the community. You want togetherness. Togetherness is number one. And the, 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 uh, the flip side, I said transparency first, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, the flip side of transparency is explicitness. We have an explicit code of conduct that everyone in the game, us included, is held to that shows how players should treat other players, how staff members should treat players, how players should treat staff members, how staff members should treat other staff members, and general, you know, acting like a decent fucking person around other people. And if you lay those things out, you have your your first and very potent line of defense against any sort of shitty person who's going to try to worm their way into your community, or people who maybe aren't shitty but just aren't behaving correctly. Right. They can be they can be shown the light or shown the door depending on their I mean, preference. Well, for example, if someone reads your code of conduct and like like makes a makes a shitty joke about safe spaces, like maybe so you're maybe n- this isn't the game for you. Maybe this isn't mm-hmm. the community for you, man. Like yeah. So. No, it's all it's that's all very good, and uh, I want to go ahead because we are wrapping it up now. Dylan, thank you very much for coming out. Woo. You were super Woo. insightful. I'm sure we'll have you on again. We may do a part two. We'll we'll sit down. We'll talk. There's we'll, still a ton to talk about. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and so for I mean, so let me go ahead and do the outro stuff. I have I have one final comment. Sure, go uh, ahead. Before we outro, um, uh, perhaps we should have brought this up in the news, uh, but the Kickstarter for the Voyage of Fortune Star. Uh, game that I've been talking about did not get funded. That means my wife is sad. That means, well, the consequences, dear listeners, will never be the same. Are on your heads. I, I'm gonna post. Dire a, I'm gonna post a picture of her pouting on on Twitter. I, it, it'll be fucking devastating. I, Holy shit! I'm just thinking about it too. Yeah, the cat. The cats will be sad. Everyone uh-huh. will be sad. It, this sadness will spread. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. But speaking of Twitter, Dylan, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my personal Twitter. It's at Mazmedias, M-A-Z-M-E-D-I-A-S. You can also find something very near and dear to my heart, the Play Together Project. Uh, we are at the Play Together. Uh, we do uh, social justice advocacy, tabletop, and other sorts of gaming, board gaming, etc. Uh, you can find both of uh, uh, those channels on Twitter, and those have links to the YouTubes and whatnot. Excellent. The appropriate parties. Uh, Scott? Uh, you can find me at Divis Melkav. And cool. that's about it. 
Yeah, and Ryan? At Arduous, at R-J-U-O-U-S. And I am at Bioimportance. Oh, and if anyone's in general for Headcanon Games, we are at Headcanon Games. That's generally how I post out the initial Twitter, and then I do a lot of retweeting. So, And speaking of retweeting, everyone, if you are on the Twitter and you're following, retweet when I post stuff about the episode. I really, really want to expand this audience, and I cannot do it without you guys' help. So please do that. Also, if you want to give us feedback, please uh, email us at polyhedronpodcast at gmail.com. Or go to iTunes, Stitcher, all of that. Give us five-star reviews. Say good things about this. I really want to grow this audience. I think there's a lot to be said in, in the realm of role-playing, both from a video game perspective, from a tabletop perspective, from a live-action perspective, all of it. I think we have a lot to contribute, and I want you to all to be a part of that conversation. We also might be running out of show ideas, so please, <laughs> yeah. please tell us yeah, what I mean, to do. We could do at least four more episodes on this slarp yeah. show. Right? I'm sure, but we really but, need know, to keep, we need to keep we, people we in the seats, see, man. We need to change it up, man. Change it up. And, uh, and, send us games to review or uh-huh. ideas to review, topic uh, information. Um, ask questions, man. I love be a going. part of this show. That's what I'm basically coming down to. Be a part of this show. Also, if you really want to support us, even even more so than just feedback, you become a patron at uh, Patreon.com/slash/Polyhedron. Become one of our bosses. Basically, that's what you do when you start giving us money. You start becoming directly involved in the production of this show, and I think that's really cool. If you want to become a part of that. We're going to be looking at our Patreon uh, soon, and we're going to sort of be revamping and hopefully getting some more attractive options out there. Yes. Uh, because we want to serve you better. Yes. Um, and with all of that, I think uh, with everyone here at Polyhedron, go where your fun is. Go roll some dice.